Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. you're back listening to us again or I'm super glad that you're new here and you found us. The best thing you can do for our show you guys is to share us with your friends and your family. So share us onto your social media or tell your friends at work that you love this podcast. Spreading the word will be super helpful. And I got this really fun email from a listener. Ah, um, I'm not going to say your name because you didn't tell me I could or that I could even share this email on here. So I'm going to keep you anonymous, but you know who you are. Hey, girl. So she just kind of told me about how she was driving and came across this, you know, thing. And she was thinking about the, you know, the creepy car dump sites, which literally happen all the time. And they literally are all over the world. So she is in Tennessee and she sent me this picture. I'll have to share it on our social media but she, it is just like these cars in a field covered in hay. So that's over in Tennessee. It really goes to show that there really are creepy car dump sites everywhere. Ugh, it creeps me out. I don't like it. Anyway, I just wanted to start this episode off by addressing what's going on in the world and just let you guys know that my heart is with anybody that is innocently affected by what's going on. So I actually read this post on Facebook and I thought it was like a really good way to look at things because I'm not going to pretend like I literally know anything about war or necessarily what exactly is going on. I guess I can get a general basis, but that is like not my niche, right? So I saw this post and it was just done by a lady that and it was going viral. I don't have her name on here. I'm sorry. But she said, Ukraine matters not because of its resources or what it contributes to the global economy. Ukraine matters because there are people there living their everyday lives, kids who go to school, people who are in pursuit of their dreams. There are families, there are animals, plants, people, and their pets, somebody's grandparents, sister, brother, couples who love each other, parents caring for their children. There are communities, neighbors, and friends. Ukraine matters because there are living beings there who want to and deserve to continue living and dreaming and hoping and loving. And I really love that because that really is like just what breaks my heart with everything going on. And it's, you know, I feel the same way. Like I don't, I don't want people in Russia to be negatively affected by this either civilians and you know, like innocent people killed. So really my heart is with all of you guys. There's a lot of things that go on in this world that I just feel are truly devastating. And I hate to see these innocent families and innocent people losing their lives over something that they really can't control. So I also came across another place that gave little places you could donate to um, that are doing work over there. There is voices.org.ua slash en. There's bit.ly slash uhukraine. There is rsukraine.org. There's vostok sos.org slash en. 
And then there is kyivindependent.com. So all of those websites are going to lead you to different organizations that are doing different things. One is a voice for children. One is, you know, United Help that helps Ukraine receive and distribute donations. One is to help the soldiers. One is to support conflict affected people. And then there's also a support for independent journalism over there in Ukraine. So I highly encourage you guys to go check those out just to maybe help and support the innocent people being affected by this. Now, as for our episode today, it really is a doozy, like one that you just can't wrap your mind around, one that really just doesn't make a lot of sense because there's not a ton of info. But there are a lot of theories, so let's get into it. Are you ready for today's case? Okay, so I'm taking you back to 1989 in Dane County, Wisconsin. It was September 3rd when a grisly discovery was made in the basement of the Good and Loud Music Store. So this business was located on University Avenue there in Madison, Wisconsin, and the owners of this store had been having some problems with their boiler. So they decided it was time for a replacement, and the owner of the building starts by removing the broken boiler. On that September 3rd day, this owner noticed water that was leaking out onto the basement floor and it seemed to be coming from a pipe that connected the boiler to the chimney. So this man, he bends down and he shines a flashlight into the pipe to investigate what was leaking. But he got more than he bargained for and this shocking chill rushes through his body when he sees what looks like a human skull. So by looking through that pipe, they can see a skull there at the bottom of the chimney. But could it really be a skull, let alone a human skull? The owners, they didn't even know what to think about the situation, so they make a call over to law enforcement. Soon, the Good and Loud Music Store was filled with investigators, and they determined that what was seen through the pipe was in fact a human skull. And not only do they find this skull, But they also find a complete human skeleton along with a pile of rotting clothing. In that pile is a sleeveless paisley print dress and a belt that matches the outfit. There is a long sleeve shirt that is buttoned down and determined to be made with an Oxford type cloth. The brand is white stag and the blouse is black. And then there's also this shaggy sweater that is a size medium. No underwear was found, but this person was wearing socks, and it was also determined that they were carrying a second pair of socks with them. And the shoes that were worn were these little high heels with like a low heel and pointed toes. And there was a necklace present among the clothes, and it's described as a German iron cross medallion. And lastly, there was a butter knife and a pocket comb. A what? A pocket comb. Like a, like a comb people keep in their pocket to brush their hair. Oh, okay. The skull was probably a female. Yes, it, that's what it's seeming like at this point. So once all of these items are discovered, they are collected as evidence and they're sent off for testing, including all the pieces of the skeleton and the skull. Soon the Madison Police Department would receive the results of these tests and something came back that they were not quite expecting. The skeletal remains were determined to be those of a male somewhere between the ages of 18 and 35 years old. 
and this person was estimated to be about five foot seven inches tall and deemed to be Caucasian, and the estimated time of death was somewhere between two months and two years. Their hair was four-ish inches long, and it was brown. So obviously, what threw police off about these results is kind of the same thing that you initially thought. Because it was a woman's clothing that was found with the skeletal remains. Right. So. We don't know the exact circumstances surrounding the life of the person who was found in the chimney. So on transtruecrime.blogspot, they wrote of this case explaining it as, quote, a skeleton of a possible transgender woman slash crossdresser slash drag performer, end quote. And I do find this to be the most likely reason that this person was dressing in women's clothing. There are like other random speculations such as the clothing being a part of like a Halloween costume. We don't actually know exactly when this person died. So it is possible this could have been a tragedy that took place on or near Halloween. It's also been said that this person may have been disguising themselves as a woman for some reason. But again, in my opinion, it was probably just someone who was dressing how they wanted. So because I'm not sure how this person viewed themselves, I'm just going to refer to them like neutrally so that I'm like not being insensitive either way. Now, what I have told you about the skeletal remains found in the chimney at the Good and Loud Music Store is pretty much all the information there is. Because although these remains were discovered in 1989, about 33 years ago, this person has never been identified and is referred to as Dane County Doe or the Dane Co. Chimney Doe. And dental records were even, you know, they took dental records of this person and they compared them to missing persons around the area, but still no matches could be found. And I found this case on the DNA Doe Project's website, and they took on this case in December of 2021, literally just months ago. So if you don't know what this organization's purpose is, I'll explain it real quick. This is an American nonprofit volunteer organization that was formed to identify the unidentified deceased people in this country using forensic genealogy. They don't only help identify victims of crime, they help identify anyone who has passed but remains nameless. So people who died due to car accidents or homicide or any unusual circumstance. And I will be highlighting their organization a little further at the end of this episode like I do with an organization at the end of every episode. And if you don't know this, I do always link every organization that I highlight in our show notes, which is like the explanation section of our pod episode wherever you're listening. The DNA Doe Project has been the reason for many Doe's identification. And I think this is really cool work. So what do we think about our Dane Co. Chimney Doe? Was this death an accident or a homicide? The Madison Police Department has stated that those are the two theories in this case, accident or homicide. So as for the accident theory, police have said that maybe this person was a burglar. Now, in order for them to have gotten to the bottom of the chimney as a way of sneaking into this store for a robbery, 
they would have had to access the roof of this store and then shimmy down this small opening themselves to the bottom of the chimney. The problem with this is that once they reach the bottom of the chimney, they would realize that they were not able to access the building from there because there was no way into the building from the chimney without removing that boiler. And the only way in or out of the chimney was through the opening at the top on the roof. If this was the case, this person was then stuck at the bottom of the chimney and died as a result of this mistake. And if they went head first into the chimney, they could have died as a result of falling down the opening too quickly and hitting their head, or they could have died of positional asphyxiation. Is that how you say it? Asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. Mm -hmm. I can't say that that good. (laughs) Now, if they went feet first into the chimney, then maybe they died of starvation while stuck in there. And going feet first might be an explanation of something else. The skeletal remains were found to have severely fractured pelvic bones. And according to this autopsy, it said that it's believed that these breaks in the pelvic bone happened at the time of death. So maybe slipping and falling quickly into the basement down the chimney caused these breaks. But I also question why the bones in the legs wouldn't break as a result of the fall. Like, do you think pelvic bones could break without causing any damage to the bones in the legs or the feet? Like going straight down. Uh, possibly. They could, you think? Maybe. It seems like it'd be odd too, but. Yeah, like unlikely, but maybe. Yeah, it's like the pressure, like maybe the way you land, like it, your pelvis took it more so. So maybe that's a possibility. For me, I don't necessarily find the burglar theory to be likely. And it seems that many people agree including police. I think that's just kind of, they're keeping an open mind to it, but it doesn't necessarily think seem that that's their main theory. I read in a lot of places that people find the outfit this person was wearing as a very odd outfit for someone trying to sneak into a store and rob it. Remember, there's high heels, a dress, an extra pair of socks. It just doesn't quite add up with the narrative. Yeah, because They were holding like the pair of socks yeah, in their hand, right? I mean, I don't know if they could tell that specifically, but there was just like an extra pair of socks probably balled up, you know, like rolled together there among the stuff, even though this person was wearing the socks. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at the time they find this person, their skeletal remains. So I'm sure kind of everything about them is just in a pile. But yeah. It just doesn't seem like they're going in there to go burglarize this store. No. So what leads police to believe that this could be a possible homicide? Well, regardless of the skeletal remains not giving a clear answer on if this person was murdered or not, the danger of going into this chimney led officers to state that they believed it's very unlikely this person would have entered the chimney voluntarily. Of course, they may not have realized that there was no exit from the chimney into the building down at the bottom, but that seems like a huge risk a lot of people probably would not take, especially if they were alone and had no help of getting back out the top. That's just so interesting. 
Yeah, it's a very <laughs> odd place to be found when there's only one entrance in the chimney and it's from the roof. Right. And then, yeah, because they couldn't have got there the other way because of the boiler, right? Yeah, that boiler, you know, doesn't seem like it was moved during all this time. You know, it said they could have been dead between two two months to two years. And from what I've seen, that boiler had not been moved during that time. I mean, that seems like kind of a... T- large time frame two months to two years I wouldn't I don't think the body would decay that fast would it I'm not sure is it just bones left yeah it was only skeletal remains so maybe that is like the quickest they could decompose and then I'm not sure what determines like how long they could have been down there but yeah I just don't think they got a lot of information from the remains with it being so decomposed Yeah. And the other thing is the question of who would sneak into this store to burglarize it. So the Good and Loud Music Store had only been operating at that location for about three months at the time the body was discovered. And before that, it seems that the building was actually vacant from January 1989 to June of 1989. So if the intent was to rob the music store specifically, and this person had been dead in there for at least two months, that means this robbery would have been planned within the first month of the music store being open. Plus, how much are you going to really gain from a brand new music store? Maybe a small amount of cash and what, some instruments? Like, I don't think a lot of people are running around trying to still violins and trombones and like carry it out of the store they're too big and I mean they can be pricey but I don't think you'd want to rob that no like highly unlikely yes now remember though we like we just talked about the body could have been there for up to two years so what was inside that building before the vacancy in 1989 Well, this building was actually formerly a Christian bookstore, and that building became vacant when the bookstore relocated to the Hilldale Mall, which was nearby. So maybe this person wanted to rob the Christian bookstore, but again, what would they gain? Maybe some cash and as many books as they could carry, I guess. Very unlikely that a Christian bookstore would be the target for a burglar. And why would they go through a chimney to do it? I know. Like, it just, it seems like dangerous, unlikely. Kind of everything surrounding that seems not likely to me. Yeah. Now, there are other theories that surround the idea of this person being in like a psychotic mental state or on drugs and then they climbed into the chimney with sort of an unknowing of what they were doing and maybe that is possible honestly it seems more possible to me than the burglary story and there's very little evidence to point out what happened since we don't know who this person is we can't determine if they did have a drug habit or a mental health history but get this Madison is known as a university town because it is the home to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This school has a large campus, one of the largest campuses in the state, and it homes sororities and fraternities. And in the 1980s and the 1990s, the school had a big problem with hazing. 
Hazing often happens within fraternities where pledging members are often humiliated and put into dangerous situations all the time in the name of initiation rituals. So some people have pointed to the fact that a pretty common hazing ritual within a frat house organization was to force male candidates into dressing up in women's clothing while making them do other things. This isn't one of the main two theories put forward from police, but again, it has been speculated by others and could seem possible. The building where Dane Co. Chimney Doe was found was extremely close to the campus and to student housing. Remember, it was even located on University Avenue. I'm not from Wisconsin, nor have I traveled to this area, but that makes me assume that it was, in fact, very close to the university. So was this person sent into the chimney as a part of a hazing ritual gone wrong and ended up dying? It makes sense to me if there was ever a record of a male student going missing from the university during this time, but there are no records of that. And Someone attending college oftentimes is still in contact with family. As you're usually like dirt poor at this time, you need a little bit of help. Or they at least usually have a friend or two. If this was a college student, I would think a family member, a friend, or even a teacher would notice the disappearance. Yeah, it's sad that no, they can't identify the person. I know, I hate these cases. Like these people just die and they're alone. Nobody's looking for them. Where's the family? Yeah, these cases are super sad to me. So let's go back to those broken pelvic bones. It has been thrown around that those bones didn't break from a fall, but were more likely to have been broken due to this person being viciously stomped on in their pelvic region. And this sort of leads into the main theory about why this person may have been the victim of a sickening murder. It was in 2012 that the police discussed the most likely scenario, and it was centered around this victim being a male crossdresser who was possibly a sex worker. It is speculated that this person may have met up with a man on the night that they died. Whether they were just meeting for a date or a hookup or they were working as a sex worker and meeting up with a customer, it all kind of leads us back to the possibility of the person they met up with becoming enraged when it's revealed that despite the way this person was dressed, they were biologically a male. So the theory is that this murder was a hate crime. Now, let's say this is a variation of what happened that night. What if the pair headed up to the roof of that store, maybe knowing at that time that it was vacant and would be, quote unquote, a safe spot for a secret hookup? This sort of plays into the idea that maybe it was a sex work encounter. Now, during this encounter, the man becomes angry. He freaks out and he kills our Co. Chimney Doe. There was no cause of death determined, and because the remains were skeletal, there are so many possibilities. But that theory also makes sense in connection to the pelvic bones being stomped on. If some douche was so angry about this person being a biological male that he would kill them, 
Don't you think it's likely he could have been stomping on this person's pelvic area as an act of his anger and hate for the fact that this person had the parts of a male? So it's disgusting if this is what happened, that someone could do this to another human. Now, after this encounter and murder, the perpetrator would have then taken the body and discarded it into the chimney, as that was the only place on that roof to conceal a body and hide the crime just committed. It makes sense to me that this would have happened when the store was vacant, although I am sure it could have happened when the Christian bookstore or music store was operating. Maybe it was in connection to someone who worked for or operated in either store, and they could have met there because it was familiar. But if the two people met on the roof during vacancy, that makes sense about why no one within the bookstore or music store ever reported this horrid smell, the smell of a decomposing body. Because although there was no exit from the chimney into the store that this person could fit through, That chimney was connected to the store via pipe and the boiler. I feel like the strong smell of decomposition would have definitely been present inside the store. I know. Wouldn't that have been so stinky? Like so, so stinky. That's what makes me think like this had to have happened when it was vacant, right? Because a body can't just decompose when people are literally there working inside that store. I know. You'd think there'd be so many complaints even from customers. and Yeah. And I've never smelled like a decomposing body, but I've heard that it's really, really bad and like very strong. Well, I never have either. But I mean, if you think you probably have animal. I honestly don't even think I have. Really? Like I haven't really been around a lot of dead things. Well, I know I've walked past like when you're walking in the woods or something, you smell something stinky and it's like, oh, yep, there's an animal that's died. Yeah, you can just tell and it's like strong in the air. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there was there's no way if people were literally inside the store day to day that they wouldn't have smelled the body decomposing. And that's what leads me to think it had to have happened when the store was vacant that this body was put in the chimney, which is what kind of leads me to like my final conclusion on the burglary theory that that was just not possible because no one's burglarizing a building that's empty. Right. Yeah. So even the police officers, I think they feel the same. It was Detective James Gran who helped with the investigation on this case. And he stated that this death is probably a homicide. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Yeah, definitely to me too. It's just not likely to me that they would go in there on their own. Uh Uh-uh. Now, and that f- the fact that this person was possibly a transgender woman or a man who enjoyed cross-dressing or doing drag could point to the reason that they were never matched to a missing person's report. Because like I just said, this was a long time ago. It was in 1989. And unfortunately, a lot of families still treated their family members who were a part of the LGBTQ community as a disgrace, often cutting ties with them. Or maybe this person cut ties with their family after feeling unwelcome, leading to a family that doesn't even realize this person is missing. And it's like, oh, please just accept people for who they are. Don't cut ties with the people you say you love. 
that would just be so devastating later on to learn that this is the fate of someone in your family and like this happened to them when they were totally alone and didn't have your support. It's just sad that even still in death they're alone because we don't know who they are or where they belong. So I think it's good that a couple months ago the um, DNA Doe Project took on the case because it seems like they have had a lot of success stories. So that would be really cool if they were able to identify this victim. Yeah, I wonder how they can by test. I mean, they have the DNA. Yeah, so it looks like they do forensic genealogy. So kind of like genetic genealogy where I think they're able to. Yeah, they can go back. Yeah, like connect family lines and kind of like move it down and, you know, narrow it down to certain people and then test those family members. Yeah. And then, I mean, I'm sure the family has somebody that's missing or that they just assume died or something. They just took it on in December of 2021. So it hasn't even been like three or four months. So we'll see what they do with this case in the next year. Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. In 2012, in this case, there was a glimmer of hope. So this woman named Laura Zimmerman, she contacted the Madison Police Department and she was like, hey, I have some information on that chimney dough you guys have. Like, I think I worked with him. And of course, this caught police attention. Laura was a retired state Senate and she worked with a man during that time who she says looked identical to the facial reconstruction that was released. The Smithsonian Institution did a clay reconstruction of the victim's skull back in 1990. And when Laura came across this information and image, she immediately connected it back to that man she once worked with from 1980 to 1985. But she could not remember his name. By the time she contacted police, it had been more than 30 years since she worked with him. For a while, she didn't even come forward for that reason. Like, I can't even remember his name, so what good would I be doing anyways? But one day, she's scrolling online and she reads this article about how medical examiners use these reconstructions to identify the unidentified homicide victims. This read really pushed her to get in touch with law enforcement and see if she had any information that would be useful. The man she remembers working with worked as a Senate page, and she hoped that the police could run the social security numbers within that company for anyone who left the company before the discovery of remains in 1989. And by tracking the people connected to these social security numbers, they might be able to see if any of them had been missing or a trail for them just ended after 1989. As far as I could tell, it seems that police were interested in investigating all of that, but it's 2022 and Laura brought forward this information in 2012. Ten years later and we still have no answers, so I would assume that police were not able to find a connection. And I know very little information comes with a case like this. And we love to dig deep and find every single detail we can in a murder or a mysterious death. But that's why it's so heartbreaking and shocking in Doe cases. Like there are literally so many people who have died and we can't even determine who they are. Like no one's looking for them or if someone's looking for them, they devastatingly can't find the person they're looking for. Just living without answers forever. I know it just seems like with how far everything's come that we would be able to identify him. 
I, but I guess you have to have the resources to do that genetic genealogy. And in some of the cases, I mean, I think a lot of them have DNA, but I know there's cases where like they don't even have enough DNA. Like they have to have enough like viable DNA or whatever. Yeah. So hopefully they're able to do that with this because it just like makes me sad that these people like they were so alone. They can't even be identified like they were so alone in their life that like no one's pushing to find them. I know. Like people don't even realize they're dead. Right. Or they just wrote it off like they their loved one did drugs and they thought they went off and are doing that or they're homeless or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that can happen a lot too where it's like, oh, I don't know what life they're living. Like they ran off, haven't been in contact with them. They're probably homeless, can't find them. Right. And then it's like how, you don't know to report a missing. Yeah. Because you don't know that they're missing. And that's just sad to me. They're alone in life and then they're alone in death. Uh, that is sad. I hate it. Yeah. So that's why organizations like the DNA Dope Project, NamUs, and much more are so important because with today's technology, like you said, they are giving families and victims peace by identifying these lost people. And there's another case very similar to this case, but had a better outcome in the sense that the identity was found. So it was only three years before the discovery of our Dane Co. Chimney Doe when someone was discovered laying on the sidewalk of the 2500 block of Wentworth Avenue, which was near Live Oak Street in Houston, Texas. This person was not deceased when they were found on July 10th, 1989, but they were unresponsive. Help was immediately called and medical personnel quickly came in response, ultimately bringing this individual to the nearest hospital. They were rushed in while nurses and doctors tried to intervene, but it was already too late. Soon after arriving at the hospital, this person was pronounced dead. And the person who had died didn't have identification on them. But on site, police could see they were wearing some jewelry, including four earrings in each ear, a clear stone ring, as well as a second ring, a silver chain, and two gold necklaces. They had on pink pants held up by a black spike belt. They were in a gray shirt, and underneath their shirt, there were some pairs of socks discovered. So in other sources, I have read that there were fake breasts underneath the shirt. So I'm not really sure if this was referring to the socks because like when they explain the socks being under the shirt, they explain it as like imitating breasts. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if the fake breasts and the socks are meaning the same thing or different things. Now, this victim also had gold painted fingernails and a heart tattoo that had a scroll within it. So due to forensic investigation by the Harris County Institute of Forensic Science, this person was determined to be a 20 to 30 year old black male around 5 foot 8 inches tall and weighing about 161 pounds. They had short black hair and brown eyes. The cause of death was strangulation and it's possible that this doe was strangled with a pair of pantyhose. So just like in the chimney doe case, translifematter.info said, quote, it's apparent from details that this doe was transgender or gender variant, end quote. So again, I'm just going to refer to this person in neutral ways. 
It is speculated that this person was possibly using drugs as they there were needle marks found on the arms during examination of the body. But that's just a possibility. If it was true, could this have been a drug deal gone wrong? Maybe, but it seems to point more towards a hate crime. And maybe this is just like stereotyping done by me, but I feel like in a like drug deal gone wrong or a killing due to drugs, I feel like it's usually like a shooting or a stabbing. Strangulation seems like a lot more personal. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, but in my opinion, it probably goes more towards a hate crime. Now, because of this person being discovered before any decomposition started, there has been a forensic illustration done that is pretty detailed. Right. There is one showing this person with super short hair and then one showing this person with still like short hair, but longer, like kind of past the ears, down by the eyebrows, but not like buzzed. And these illustrations were done by Kim Parkhurst and the Trans Doe Task Force are the ones who first came across this case and took it on trying to find answers. But such little information was available. Literally after this person died, there seems to have been absolutely nothing done. There were no leads at this time because they literally could not even determine who this was. Which is crazy to me because they were found on a sidewalk still alive. Like there has to be someone nearby who would recognize this person or know who they are. Like it's not like they found a skeleton like they did in the other case. Like this person was laying there alive on the sidewalk and they still couldn't find out who it was. Yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah, because they knew what the person looked like and everything, right? Oh, yeah. Like they like fully knew what they looked like. So it's like someone in that area had to have been able to see a picture of this person and be like, oh, yeah, I've seen them around. So it kind of makes me question really how much work even went in to identifying this person or, you know, like looking into the murderer. Yeah, like how much investigation was done. Yeah, because it was in 1986. Again, we are talking about something that was not super accepted at that time. So I feel like this case it almost seems like it was unidentified for so long, just kind of due to a lack of caring. Yeah. Because I think a lot more could have been done in the moment. I mean, that strangulation, this person was still alive. That strangulation had to have just happened. Yeah. Like the person who did it was probably within five minutes of the area, you know? Right. But when the Trans Doe Task Force did get involved with the case, they were able to connect with the DNA Doe Project, who just last year, on January 22nd, 2021, announced that they were able to identify this person, who was formerly only known as the Live Oak Doe. However, the name of this person has still not been released. So we don't actually know much more information on the crime. But I hope having a name means that police will relook at this case and talk to the people who knew this person. I am glad that this person was finally given back a name and an identity and not forever lost. But I'm not sure why they're not releasing the name. I'm not sure if it is because police are going to investigate it a little further, you know, and want kind of to keep that in their back pocket. I'm not sure if the family 
is wanting to kind of keep it private. Yeah, hopefully it's that it's being investigated like it's an active case. Yeah, I really hope so. Oh, it made that made me think the other reason I thought that this probably wasn't super identified is underneath on the DNA Doe project, they have like the area of jurisdiction, like the, you know, the police force that is in charge of the investigation and stuff. And most of them do have, you know, a police department listed. Like in our last case, it was the Madison Police Department. But in this case, they did not list a police department as being in charge of this investigation. They only listed that, um, what was it? Let's see, the Harris County Institute of Forensic Science. So I thought, like, oh, that's weird. So there's not necessarily a police force working on it. So I hope now that they were just identified this last year that maybe that was given to a police department and it is being looked into. That'd be great. If this was a hate crime, it's so sickening. This person was likely strangled by someone who was shocked by the discovery of their biology or someone who was filled with hate by the sight of a person who was just living the way that they felt best. And if that's the case in our first case, these cases are very similar. And both of these cases are sad to me. The second case was brutal and violent, and the first case could have been a similar act. These people were likely unidentified for so long due to the fact that ties were probably cut when their lifestyles were not accepted by family or friends, and that's just super sad to me. Accept people for who they are, spread more love, and end the hate for those that are different than you. And today I'm going to be talking about Fiji. They have a super big hidden temple there. And it is huge. It's the biggest in the summer's hemisphere called the Sri Siva Subramania Temple. I am going to look at a picture of it on my mom's phone. It is huge and colorful and colorful and beautiful. And the doors have a pattern on it. And did you know that that temple has so many colors? Have a great day. So I told you guys during the episode that I was going to highlight the DNA Doe Project a little further here at the end of the episode. And I'm going to highlight that and the Trans Doe Network since that heavily played a role into the cases we are talking about today. So the DNA Doe Project, I kind of already explained it, but they do use genetic genealogy to identify John and Jane Doe's. They are an all-volunteer organization that has attracted some of the best genetic genealogists in the industry, and they're all working towards that goal of reuniting these does with their families. You can visit their website at dnadoeproject.org. So I highly encourage you to go there, check it out. You can look through the cases. You can find ways to donate or volunteer. The other organization you can visit is transdoetaskforce.org. 
and their goal is to find and research cases of LGBTQ missing and murdered persons. So on their website, you can read about how transgender and gender variant people are disproportionately targeted in violent crimes, and they also have a higher suicide rate among them. So they are far more likely to be estranged from their families and end up in these vulnerable situations and where they don't have adequate support. So they say that there are likely to be hundreds of transgender does filed in cold case files as either Jane or John Doe. And it says that, you know, that might not match the gender they lived under or the descriptions anyone looking for them may have given. So they are seeking out to find these individuals who have slipped through the cracks so that they can have a chance of being identified using the latest advances in forensic science and technology. If you visit that website, you can find a place to donate or volunteer. You can also look through their cases and just see what they're all about. Again, like I always do, I highly encourage you to visit one or both of these websites and get involved. The only thing we can really do through listening to these stories and partaking in this genre is to help out organizations that are fighting these violent crimes. I'm glad I had you today. I will see you again next Wednesday.